0: Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, our text this morning, will be the first 13 verses of the chapter. Last couple of weeks as we've begun to work our way into this book that we call the Acts of the Apostles we've been seeing how Jesus has been preparing his apostles for the coming of the spirits both initially before the ascension and then in the preparation of the the witness added to by Matthias completing the 12 but here in chapter 2 we come to Pentecost uh, in order to see what this event not only meant in its time but means for us today we need the Holy Spirit's help. We need him to accompany his word and bring about a new creation. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come to you, desiring that you would grant your Holy Spirit to us once again. As we've already sung, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would do your work in our hearts and lives this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit." of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt's, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when I was around 12 years old, I had an experience that I'm I'm not likely to ever forget. Uh, my father had been developing business in Lebanon, and he'd been working particularly with a, a contact in the Lebanese uh, delegation to the United Nations. And so as as part of that development work, he was invited, uh, and he was invited to take me along with him, uh, to go on a tour of the United Nations building. And so this was fall 1983, and it was right after the Soviets had downed uh, Korean Airlines flight 007. Um, the, the United Nations that night was filled with dignitaries. We actually got to meet the U.S. ambassador uh, to the U.N. Gene Kirkpatrick uh, as we were working our way through the various hallways. But what I'll remember most from that evening is, is sitting in the Security Council chamber listening or trying to listen to the debates Everyone, as they were speaking, was talking in their native language. And so how was it going to be possible for English speakers uh, to understand all of these different languages? Well, there were these devices that we placed over one of our ears, uh, this kind of plastic covering. We put it to our ears, and then we twisted this knob to English, and there was someone translating this unknown language in real time so that we could understand everything that was being said. Now, something similar is happening here in our passage this morning, real-time translation, but with a twist. Because there was no need to put a device over one's ear or dial the selected language, no. God, the Holy Spirit, was at work so that nations that were once scattered might be brought together to make the world new. not not through international realpolitik, but, but rather through declaring the mighty works of God done in and through Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus had told his disciples that this very thing was going to happen. He said, stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will receive power to witness but, but in order to fully grasp, or at least begin to try to grasp what's going on here in this, this first part of Acts chapter 2, we have to ask and answer two questions. Uh, first, what's happening here on the day of Pentecost? And second, what does this mean for us today? First, what's happening at Pentecost? Second, what does this mean for us today? So first question, what's happening here at Pentecost? Well, Peter is actually going to begin to explain what this means in his sermon, starting in verse 14. But from just these 13 verses, we can say that at least two things are going on. Namely, there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, upon God's people uh, in such such a fashion that they are empowered. And secondly, this this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this empowerment, is in order to the outreaching of the nations— so there's an outpouring and an outreaching. This outpouring, is it, it happens when God's people are united together. Verse 1 tells you, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They were all together. Who's the all there? Well, it's likely more than just the 12 apostles. I think it's likely that it's at least the 120 who we saw worshiping in the previous chapter. And they were all together, women and men, uh, apostles and others, Mary the mother of Jesus, Jesus's brothers, others beside, they were all together in one place. What place? Well, it, it could have been the upper room, whatever the upper, wherever the upper room was in the previous chapter, they could have been worshiping in that place, praying together, or they could have been someplace near the temple, perhaps, after all this is the harvest festival and they would have been worshiping in connection with the temple so perhaps they were somewhere close it needed to be some place where these devout Jews from every nation when they hear the rushing wind and they hear the cacophony of languages had to be somewhere close to where they could rush together they could gather together but where exactly it was we're not sure but these Christians, these Jesus followers, they're all together, they're united, they're praying, and the Holy Spirit's poured out. How do we know the Holy Spirit's poured out? Of course, the Luke, the, the writer of this book, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us, but, but he also tells us there are signs, there are evidences that point to the reality that the Holy Spirit was poured out. There are three in particular that he notices. The the first sign of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was this this sound of a rushing wind. Did you see it? Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, After the familiar first verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, verse 2 of Genesis Genesis 1 goes like this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God's own Spirit is pictured there at the very beginning of creation on that very first day as hovering over the waters. But how did the Spirit hover? how did Moses picture, if you will, the Spirit hovering over the waters? Well, perhaps the Spirit hovered over the water like the wind. Because the Hebrew word for wind and the Hebrew word for spirit is actually the same word. It's the Hebrew word raush. And of course, the wind of God, the Spirit of God, as he hovers over those waters, the Word of God is spoken and things happen. Right? Let there be light, and light was, light shone, as word and spirit cooperated together. Fast forward to Pentecost. As as the Spirit of God is being poured out, the sound, not necessarily the feeling, but the sound of rushing wind is, is flowing through the room. And as the Word of God is being proclaimed, with the Spirit of God accompanying, what's happening? A new creation. A new creation is happening. A new age is being birthed in this moment. This age of the spirit. It's the first sign of the outpouring. You have this rushing wind. But there's a second sign. And it's the sight of of tongues of fire. Verse 3. And and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them. And rested on each one of them. Again, this has Old Testament imagery behind it. In in Exodus chapter 3 you remember there Moses is called in that scene to be the mediator that God has chosen to stand between him and his people a, a prophet priest and king who's going to lead his people out of slavery to the promised land but but how did God call him to do that you remember through a burning bush or or perhaps better a bush that was on fire and yet it did not burn that's what caught Moses's attention he turns aside to see this wonder and the voice of God, the word of God comes out of the, this bush that's on fire and does not burn and says, what? Moses, take off your sandals. Because the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. And so the fire represents the holy presence of God. And the holy presence of God is there in the bush and he speaks and consecrates everything around. What was it that John the Baptist said about Jesus in Luke chapter 3? He said he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The coming of the Spirit would would come with holiness and consecration, would come with burning and judgment. And so here is the scene. The Holy Spirit is poured out. His people, if you will, are baptized. And what comes is a sign of that, the fire of God, sanctifying, purifying, consecrating, And the tongues of fire were a sign that the Spirit has been poured out. But there's one more sign. It's the most obvious one, the one that gets the most attention even by scholars today. And other Christians, these voices with the ability to speak in different languages. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the 120 were all filled with the Spirit, women and men, apostles and non-apostles. They, they, they're all filled with the Spirit, and they are all enabled to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. As the event will prove, these are known languages, unknown to the speakers, but known to the hearers, and it was a clear sign that the Spirit had been poured out upon God's people. It was what Jesus had prepared the apostles for. In John chapter 20, when he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, that preparation along with the teaching of chapter 1 prepared them to receive the Holy Spirit as it was poured out upon them. He had promised, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And here he is. And the signs show it. The rushing wind, the burning fire, the different languages. Because this pouring out of the Holy Spirit... To which the sign's point was not just for the apostles. Not just for the non-apostles. Not just for the women. Not just for the men. Not just for the 120. It was for a purpose. The outpouring was in order to outreaching. Because, of course, others hear the rushing wind. Others hear the cacophonous noise of all these different languages speaking. uh, People speaking in different languages. and, And they rush to where the 120 are. These devout Jews, Luke says they're bewildered. They're amazed. They're astonished. They they recognize that these are Galileans, and yet they wonder, verse 8, how is it that we hear each of us in our native language? And then Luke begins to give an inventory of where these devout Jews and God-fearers were from, a, a list that actually basically works out in description from east to west and from north to south. The list starts with Parthians and Medes and and Elamites, which corresponds to modern-day Iran. And then residents of Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. Judea, of course, that's modern-day Palestine. To the north, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, modern-day Turkey. To the southwest, Egypt and Libya belonging to to, uh, Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, kind of the the westernmost point from uh, Palestine. And then Luke describes the range of people, both Jews and Gentile converts, from Crete, an island in the Mediterranean, all the way to Arabia. What does this inventory communicate? The Spirit was enabling these 120 Jesus followers to declare the mighty works of God and to declare those mighty works of God through Jesus Christ to the world to the nations, to people from all parts of the globe, from east to west and north to south, from one end of the world to the other end of the world. It was just as Jesus had promised. You will be my witnesses to the nations, he had said. And now, here we are, ten days later, and it was so. But even those who saw and heard these things, they were amazed and perplexed, Luke tells us. They were saying to one another what does this all mean and perhaps you're here this morning you're asking the same thing okay this is amazing we're astonished what does this mean what does it mean for us today as i said peter will explain some of that as as we'll see next week but right now we can certainly draw some conclusions about what it means for us today and three things in particular in do undo renew first Endued. Pentecost means that God has endued each one of us with his powerful presence. God, the Holy Spirit, has come to dwell in us. Now, now, Peter will make that clear next week as we'll see when he quotes Joel 2. Your your young men and women will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and the rest. The spirit of prophecy will come upon all people. And we're so used to this idea that God the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Here we are two millennia later. But but we have to stop for a moment and realize this is unbelievable. To a first century God-fearer, the idea that God the Holy Spirit would come to dwell in us as a permanent possession and to empower us in our daily lives for his work and mission, that is unbelievable. Believable, Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given to individuals for some task or office, but wasn't given to everyone as a permanent possession. For, for example, in Exodus chapter 31, Bezalel, we're told, was filled with the Spirit for a particular task. For the purpose of building the tabernacle and, and for developing the, the holy instruments that would go with the tabernacle. Judges chapter 15, we're told that Samson had the Spirit of God rush upon him to defeat um, and destroy God's enemies, the Philistines. Same with Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 11. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, we're told, when God's enemies, the Ammonites, threatened his people. But throughout the Old Testament, the, the Spirit's filling and empowerment was not permanent and was extended particularly to those who have particular offices, prophets, priests, Kings. But here in Acts 2, what's happened? What's happened is this God's Spirit, his powerful holy presence fills each, each one there present. Men and women, officers, non-officers. And he is endued each with power so that so that they might be witnesses and participate in his mission. But listen, friends, it didn't just happen at Pentecost. From that day, To this day, no matter who you are or where you've been, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, he fills you with his own holy presence. He endues you with power so that we might be witnesses. We might participate in his ongoing mission to his world. And he calls us to continue to yield ourselves to the Spirit's control. The the Apostle Paul will tell us that in Ephesians chapter 5. There Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, or better, keep on being filled with the Spirit. After all, God the Holy Spirit dwells in you, and and just as, as if we were to get drunk with wine, we would be under the control of those spirits. So Paul says to us, no, continue to yield yourself to the Holy Spirit, be under his control, keep keep experiencing his empowerment. Why? For what purpose? Well, you and I are kings and priests in the kingdom of God, and God the Holy Spirit has endued us with power so that we might participate in his ongoing work in his world. What does it mean for us today, this Pentecost? It means the Spirit has endued us with power, power to witness, power to participate in what God is doing. But there's a second thing that this all means. Not just undo, but also undo. You see, Pentecost means that God is undoing the curse of Babel. Remember Babel back in Genesis chapter 11? In, in the previous chapters, chapter, Genesis chapter 8, chapter 9, Noah and his sons are brought off the ark. God makes covenant with them. Uh, and through them, with the earth itself, and he tells them, "Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Do, does Noah's sons actually do that? No, they don't. Noah's sons and their descendants, they stay together in a holy huddle. They're determined never to be scattered again. And so they move together at the beginning of Genesis eleven east to the plains of Shinar. And they're so determined not to be scattered. What do they do? They build a tower. The tower's purpose is to keep them from being scattered, but it has a second purpose, as they'll say. They want to make a name for themselves. Name is a name for themselves as the great ones of the earth, uh, because they would be able to build a tower up to the heavens, up to where God dwells. And somehow by, by going to where the gods dwell that they too might be like gods, you see? The Tower of Babel is just a, a replay of the original sin disobeying God's word with one eye on being like God himself. So what does God do? How does he view it all? Well, in Genesis chapter 11 verse 7, he says, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And that's what happens. It's a, a gracious judgment, this curse. It's, it's a judgment because it leads to the confusion of language. It's so that the people babble at one another. They don't understand each other. And as a result of not understanding each other, they scatter. And that's where it's gracious. Because in the scattering, they actually carry out the command of God. They, they multiply, they fill the earth. But fast forward to Pentecost. What do you have here? You have people drawn from all over the world, east and west, north and south, from Crete to Arabia. And they all have different languages. But what do they now hear? They hear the same message in their own language at the same time. What is this? God is undoing the curse of Babel. He's undoing the curse of Babel by uniting his diverse people into one new humanity centered on the mighty works of God. And which works are these? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So that whoever you are and wherever you've been, whether you're around the world or your very next door, this message of God's mighty works is being declared in a language that you can understand. That, that though we were sinners and enemies and ungodly, Christ died for us on the cross all those years ago. An event that was not simply in a point in time, but has continuing effects for us today so that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, his death becomes ours. His righteousness becomes ours. But it's not simply so that our sins might be pardoned. No, Jesus' death and burial is in order to deal with the thing we fear the most, death itself. Because in the tomb and in the resurrection, Jesus Christ defeated death once for all. On the third day when Jesus rose, he secured as the first fruits of the resurrection our resurrection. So that there's coming a day when death will be dealt with once and for all. And you and I will have new bodies in a new world. Life forever with the King. That's the message. And that's the message that's being declared on this very Sunday in every time zone around the world. Friends, there's coming a day when God's mission will be fulfilled, and his multiracial, multi-ethnic people will be gathered together, and you and I will be part of it. And we'll hear them singing: Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And that song, my friends, won't be sung simply in English, it'll also be sung in Spanish and Swahili, and German, and Greek, and French, and Chinese, and and thousands of dialects beside. But it'll be the same song. During the Sunday school hour, I sat in the line-by-line class where there was a report from our friends who went to Tanzania, and they played a video where there was a song that was sung, a song about taking all our cares and needs to Jesus in prayer. And, and though I didn't know the words because they were singing in Swahili, oh, I knew the words and I knew the tune because I've been singing that song all my life. And how joyous it will be on that day when we see the, that what had happened at Babel is completely undone and the, and the dividing wall that keeps us apart is thoroughly torn away. But on this day, not just in every time zone, but in every zip code in this city, They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They may be more exuberant than us Presbyterians. May lean more fully into Pentecost as Pentecostals. And yet, singing the same song. Preaching the same Jesus. Loving the same church. Don't you see? What Pentecost means for us today is not simply that we've been endued with power, but that we are participating in the undoing of the curse at Babel. And yet there's one more thing, this renewal that comes, this renewal that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because remember the rushing wind at creation and this rushing wind at Pentecost? What does it mean? It's a clear sign that the new creation has come. The new age is here. God is making all things new. To be sure, the final fulfillment of it all will be at the end of the age. At the last day, the Spirit's renewal, which is pictured as fire in 2 Peter 3, pictured as a baptism of water in Isaiah 32, pictured as a flowing stream that washes everything in Isaiah 34, the Spirit's renewal will cause the world to be born again. it will cause this world to be restored so that it's better than Eden. Can you imagine a world that is Eden, but better? That's what's promised And yet until that day comes, you and I are called to participate in the work of renewal in every sphere of our lives, in every corner of our world, because we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue to do our work of witness in every single calling to which God sends us. So that if we're a research scientist trying to discover a, a cure for a particular kind of cancer and we're working for a big pharmaceutical company, we're we're not simply doing our work so that shareholders' profits and and drugs get delivered on time. We're doing our work to drive back the darkness, to drive back this evil that plagues so many lives and destroys, because cancer is the destroyer. And we're participating in this in a little way in the work of the renewal of all things, or if we're a physical therapist, and God's called us into that work as we work with young and old and everyone in between and the variety of conditions we find them, our, our deep longing is, is that they might be able, just a little bit, to participate in the joy that we'll see in coming chapters in acts where someone who couldn't even move could leap and, and dance with joy because God has worked in their bodies. And we're for an artist, and God has given us those, that calling and those gifts to allow God's people to see things slant, To see light and darkness in play in such a way that the light always wins. Though the story might not be finished yet. Because goodness and truth and beauty are displayed in our world. And have artists among us who who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to allow us to see that. That's participation in the renewal of all things. Oh friends, don't you see? As we go about our work in every square inch of this world, Jesus is using you to say, this is mine. This is mine, because of course, Jesus Christ is Lord. Caesar is not. Lust and desire is not. The marketplace is not. No, Jesus is Lord. He's the one who's at work. He said, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses. That's not a duty. It's a promise. It's a promise. As as those who have followed Jesus Christ, who've had his spirit poured out upon us so that he has taken up residence in us. Don't you see? You and I are participating in what Paul says. New creation. The old has passed away, the new's come. Or as Jesus himself says in Revelation 21, John doesn't quote Jesus there as saying, I will make all things new. No, he quotes Jesus there saying, I am making all things new. And he uses you and he uses me. We know here that God's grace transforms our callings. He transforms our callings so that wherever we are, we're living out of the love of neighbor that actually begins to change things. This is is what Pentecost means. This is the work that the Holy Spirit does. Isn't it glorious? Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us eyes to see that what you are doing in and through us, that you are using us um, to bring about a, a world made new. We, we know that that waits to the last day. And yet you call us to participate in what you're doing. This is part of your mission. And so, breath of God, come sweeping through us. Revive us, renew us, so that by word and deed we might bear testimony, we might witness to the reality that Jesus, your Lord, your Lord, you're the great King of the world. Every knee will bow one day, but we bow. We bow the knee to you. We confess you. We bear witness to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would gain great glory in your church this day. If we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our hymnals and turn to number.